You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Strength to Heal, brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department, AMED. Your host is trauma surgeon Dr. John Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a former Army colonel who served as director of the U.S. Army Trauma Training Center in Miami, Florida, and as chair of the ACS Army Committee on Trauma. Management of severe traumatic brain injury at the cutting edge in Army medicine. Our guest is Colonel and Dr. Leon Moores, consultant in neurosurgery to the Army Surgeon General and former Chief of Neurosurgery at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Moores. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Dr. Moores, we are in a time of war, and we are seeing injuries in this conflict which capture the imagination. What can you tell us about the spectrum of injuries? Well, one of the things that we're noting is that our forward resuscitation capabilities are so extraordinary that the survival rates have increased. This means that at our hospitals in Germany and back within the United States, such as Walter Reed Army Medical Center and the National Naval Medical Center, we're seeing a severity of injury which is unprecedented. Uh, That leaves us with the opportunity to take care of young men and women who otherwise may not have survived in previous conflicts create very complicated management problems, uh, which we've been working at some pretty significant solutions for. And what are some of those management problems? Well, the volume of brain injury is significant in many of these men and women. Uh, In comparison to previous conflicts, we're able to uh, save the lives of and return to a reasonable level of function in, in many, many cases. Uh, folks with injuries that have traversed virtually an entire hemisphere of brain tissue. Uh, Sometimes dominant hemisphere brain injuries, which in the past might not have survived, will survive, and therefore we're able to not only save them acutely, but participate in rehabilitative care for months and years and getting folks back to a quality of life which is acceptable. Additionally, as you can imagine, particularly with penetrating injuries, the degree of soft tissue and bony injury of the overlying brain creates a reconstructive problem for us, uh, which requires complex solutions and a multidisciplinary approach, including neurosurgery, plastic surgeons, facial surgeons, and uh, even our dentists who participate in some of the facial injuries. So you have the brain injuries themselves, you have the injuries to the surrounding bone and soft tissue, and I would imagine that the brain injury initially takes precedence, and then there are consequences to management of the brain injury in in terms of further reconstruction. That's absolutely correct. Uh, Initially, we're most concerned about swelling of the brain within the first 24 to 96 hours, uh, the brain can swell tremendously. And one of our biggest therapeutic maneuvers in taking care of that is to remove a much larger portion of bone than the initial penetrating injury had created. In blunt injuries, we will do that as well. We'll do an operative procedure to remove a very large portion of the skull. And then the brain can swell without creating injury. As you know, when the brain swells inside a fixed skull, it can create a significant increase in pressure resulting in decreased blood flow, and that can lead to stroke and death. 
by removing that large piece of bone, we're able to allow that swelling to occur without that endpoint. Subsequent to that, when the swelling has gone down and the acute injuries uh, have been treated, often several months later, we can work on some of the cosmetic repairs uh, that were secondary. Remember, too, that these injuries to the brain and face typically do not occur in isolation. Often these young men and women have multiple injuries to the torso and extremities, uh, which are being managed simultaneously with the head injury. So as a casualty presents with these multidimensional injuries, cutting across injuries to the torso and to the extremities and then to the head, the initial priorities in management remain the ABCs? They do indeed. You're absolutely right. There's significant resuscitative effort that takes place far forward. And the ability to rapidly stop blood loss, to move the casualties to forward resuscitative surgical teams in expeditious fashion, uh, oftentimes within minutes to you know an hour, hour and a half, follows those same ABCs that we all know about from our advanced trauma life support systems. I guess to say it another way, the resuscitation of D-disability remains ABC. It does. It does indeed. Have there been any lessons from the current conflict in specifics of resuscitation in patients with known severe traumatic brain injury that might lessen the consequences of that injury beyond promotion of perfusion? Well, I think that perfusion remains uh, the biggest issue in terms of the entire body, but specific to the cranium, we've learned that a much larger removal of bone tissue uh, to allow an unprecedented level of swelling is therapeutic. We knew from the civilian trauma and stroke literature that removal of a large portion of bone can be helpful, and and we've become very, very aggressive at removing even larger segments of the skull, oftentimes portions of the skull from both hemispheres, sometimes both anterior and posterior skull. When these men and women are injured initially, they're often unconscious, potentially because of the blunt or penetrating trauma that they suffered. They have multiple wounds, and you have to make a decision very quickly about intervening surgically. You have the capability in theater to intervene with virtually every case. Some cases, clearly, when the initial CAT scan is obtained, you recognize that there's been so much tissue disruption that, unfortunately, that casualty is not going to survive and you don't perform aggressive neurosurgical interventions. What we've found is we've sort of pushed the envelope forward in terms of the initial exam and initial presentation with which we are willing to intervene. Folks who come in with a Glasgow Coma scale score of three or four, potentially with even dilated pupils because of the blast injury or other trauma to the eyes, or their eyes are missing because of the penetrating injury they've undergone, oftentimes we will still perform aggressive neurosurgical resuscitation. And, you know, months later, these folks will walk into your clinic, which is not something you would typically see. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Strength to Heal, brought to you by the United States Army on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. John Armstrong, and our guest is Colonel and Dr. Leon Moores. We are discussing the management of severe head trauma, lessons learned from the current modern battlefield. And we've been talking about neurosurgical resuscitation and removal of sizable bone flaps 
to allow for decompression. Uh, Dr. Moores, do you remove bone flaps on both sides of the skull? Sometimes we do, John. If we look at the injury and the injury pattern includes a significant portion of both of the hemispheres of the brain, we will do exactly that. And sometimes we'll remove some of the posterior bone over the cerebellum if that area has been injured and looks like it's going to swell in the future. And I'm sure our listeners are curious, where do you put the bone once you've removed it? Well, in the past, and this is an area where we have, I feel, advanced the science of this care. In the past, what we would do is tuck that bone into the abdominal wall uh, beneath the skin and, and anterior to the abdominal fascia, and then have that bone available uh, months to sometimes even a year, year and a half later to re-implant. What we found is that with modern equipment, we are able to create a prosthetic model uh, using CAT scans with very high-resolution imaging that fits the patient's bony defect more precisely than their own bone does. Uh, This prosthesis is made from a plastic resin and can recreate some of the complex shapes of the face much better than a portion of bone that may have had fractures from a blunt injury or may have had significant bone loss from a penetrating injury. So we no longer keep that bone. We discard that when it's removed in theater. And when the patients are ready to undergo their reconstructive surgery, we create a brand new implant for them that's a better fit than their own bone and does not subject them to a second incision in their belly and potential risk of infection and discomfort from that other surgical scar where the old bone used to be. Well, it sounds like you've removed a variable to recovery. We have. And, you know, another thing that's often challenging, and as a surgical intensivist, John, you're familiar with this, is that oftentimes these young men and women will have fevers postoperatively, and you're searching for the source of infection. And with that bone that's sitting in the belly, that often comes into question as to whether or not it needs to be removed or whether you need to remove some samples of tissue or fluid to test it for infection. And it removes a significant variable in that algorithm as well. well. You mentioned that you are pushing neurosurgical resuscitation closer to the point of injury. Who is it that's doing the neurosurgical resuscitation? Well, we have neurosurgeons constantly present Uh, in the battlefield, and they are set up at the surgical hospitals because of the evacuation times and the air superiority that our forces have in theater. The evacuation time to the neurosurgeon is very, very short. Oftentimes, if a casualty can tolerate that, some of the forward resuscitative surgical areas are bypassed if there's a known head or spine injury and they're taken directly to a hospital where a neurosurgeon is present. We've been talking with Colonel and Dr. Leon Moores about lessons in the management of severe traumatic brain injury from the war, particularly emphasizing the emerging concept of aggressive neurosurgical resuscitation on the battlefield. Dr. Moores, thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you again. It was great spending time with you, and it's nice talking to you again, John. Thank you for listening to The Strength to Heal on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. The Strength to Heal is brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department. Amen. For more information on this or any other program and to access our on-demand features, please visit us at ReachMD.com. 
For more information regarding Army medicine, go to healthcare.goarmy.com heal to learn more. When we talked to Captain Ernesto Cardenas, an OBGYN in the Army Medical Corps, we asked him why he chose the Army for his practice. His answer surprised us. He didn't talk about being given an established practice or not having to worry about insurance, employees, or rent. He didn't say that he enjoyed having the most advanced technology at his disposal or being a member of one of the world's largest healthcare systems. Captain Cardenas talked about giving back to the country that had given him so much. He went on to tell us about practicing in a humanitarian mission to his native Colombia and the sense of pride he felt in providing free care to people in need there. A medical career in the U.S. Army or Army Reserve is rewarding on many levels, personal and professional. You can reward your career, your country, and your life for a lifetime. Exercise your strength to heal. Visit healthcare.goarmy.com heal to learn more. That's healthcare.goarmy.com heal.